September 24th, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today our guest is David Morlack. David is Professor of Pharmacology and Director of the Center for Biomedical Neuroscience at our neighboring institution, the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio. David's work is on the function of the neurotransmitters norepinephrine and serotonin in the brain and especially in relation to the response to chronic stress and also mental illnesses like chronic depression. Welcome, David. Hi, Charlie. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And around the room, we have Matt Bonnard. Hello. Nicole Wicha. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So, David, could you start us with just a little bit of background? So, what's special about norepinephrine and serotonin? Why do we think they're especially important for understanding depression? Sure. Um, norepinephrine and serotonin are one class of neurotransmitter called monoamines, and they're kind of unique in the brain in that small numbers of cells that make these transmitters project throughout the brain, and their cellular effect is not really straightforward excitation or inhibition. They change, they change the way that other transmitters influence their targets. So based on their sort of widespread distribution and this neuromodulatory effect, they're not doing something like mediating a specific response to a specific stimulus. Rather, we think that they're important in changing brain function overall, changing state. Um, and for this reason, they're going to be involved in things like what we study, which is the stress response, but also um, in illnesses that are really representative of changes in behavioral state and, and the way that people sort of operate across the spectrum of brain function, like depression or PTSD or schizophrenia. So they're sometimes called neuromodulators, right. and so are peptide transmitters sometimes called that. Mm -hmm. And lately, other things have been called neuromodulation, yeah. and so the word has become pretty overloaded. Yeah. Could you clarify what it means when we're referring to sure. serotonin and norepinephrine? Yeah, I mean, I think... The concept of neuromodulation is pretty widespread because, you know, you can do okay with one on switch and one off switch because how it responds doesn't really vary too much. And so in, in the brain, that tends to be glutamate and GABA. These are, are uh, excitatory and inhibitory um, amine transmitters. And the variations on those responses is where we start to recruit other types of neurotransmitters. Modulation just means they don't turn things on or off, they change the way other things turn things on or off. So it's more like a volume control, um, or for those of us of a certain age, the equalizers on your old stereo that would change the nature of the sound rather than power on, power off, which is what we think sort of glutamate and GABA are doing. Um, there are so many neurotransmitters and so many receptors and so many signal transduction pathways that do these kinds of things because they vary over time, they vary in context, in magnitude, in how they influence the operating characteristics of, of their targets. Um, but it's what adds complexity, context-specific responses, 
it what really makes the brain as complex as it is. It's not just a switchboard that is a bunch of on and off switches. It's it's a lot of things changing over time with plasticity and, and in different situations. So there's a kind of uh, norepinephrine theory of depression or serotonin theory of depression. Yeah. There are very few GABA theories of anything, but there <laughs> seem to be a surfeit of norepinephrine theories yeah. of things. Why is that? Well, I mean, I think if you think about the nature of those transmitter systems, if you didn't have glutamate in your brain, it, it wouldn't work, period. Um, so there are probably no illnesses attributable to lack of glutamate because that would not be consistent with a brain that's working. Other things are that are fine-tuning the brain that are changing the way that it responds under certain contexts, if you take them away, you can get deficiencies. You can get incapabilities or you can get pathology that manifests itself under certain situations. But it's not like the brain is on or the brain is off. So uh, how does, what does depression have to do with these transmitters? I mean, yeah. obviously, what we know is that the drugs that work uh, against depression are often uh, transporter blockers, and specifically serotonin transporter mm -hmm. blockers, but also norepinephrine mm -hmm. transporter blockers. So w what does that tell us about depression? Can we jump to some conclusions? Or yeah, well, we you know, that, that, that has sort of defined the field for a long time. The antidepressants that are most prominent today are drugs that were discovered by accident in the 1950s. And, you know, there was sort of a logic that worked in reverse, that if drugs that are effective in treating an illness, like depression, target a certain neurotransmitter, norepinephrine, serotonin, then sort of the thinking went, it's, it's a good likelihood that the illness represents some deficiency in those, in those transmitters. Uh, that really doesn't seem to be the case. Um, there's very little evidence that depression, or at least most depression, is related to a deficiency in serotonin function or norepinephrine function. What it tells us, though, is that whatever these transmitter systems do, the, the modulatory function, that sort of widespread um, enhancement of, of target systems, if you have a deficiency that leads to depression, boosting the activity of these modulatory systems can be beneficial. And I think that's really where, we're, that's where we appreciate how the drugs that are effective in, in depression or other psychiatric illnesses probably work. With a short of our ability to figure out exactly what causes depression, the ability of knowing, the ability to show that serotonin doesn't cause depression seems like a powerful thing. So how do you, how do we know that? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, the, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> <laughs> is it really, is it really like that? Or is it that we know for sure that serotonin isn't the cause because we have some particular risk? Yeah, no, I don't think, so I, I think one of the problems is that the illnesses we're studying are very poorly defined. And, you know, to translate a human illness that has many manifestations, and, you know, if you look at the symptom list that, that defines depression, some of them are things like overeating or undereating, too much sleep, too little sleep, um, you, you know, and it, it really reflects dysregulation rather than any specific symptom per se. And, and so I think that presents a real challenge when we try to create in the, in the laboratory an animal model that will give us some insight into what can cause 
the illness because they're just very poorly defined. Having said that, we certainly can deplete serotonin and we get behavioral and physiological changes that reflect in some sense what happens in depression, but it's also not specific to depression. Likewise with norepinephrine or dopamine or other neurotransmitter systems. So I think it's just not as simple as a deficiency in one neurotransmitter equals a particular illness. And I think the field now is really starting to look at it that way, that there are many systems that can be dysregulated that will each produce a certain cluster of symptoms that will combine in certain ways to produce what we know as psychiatric illness. Um, understanding that constellation of dysregulation then perhaps gives us targets for therapy. But I think it probably also explains why none of the therapies that we use in psychiatric practice now are all that terribly effective against any of the illnesses. They're only hitting a piece of the puzzle. Every now and then somebody says, uh, here's my mouse model of depression. And uh, it usually evokes a little bit of a chuckle around the room. So how do we really, I mean, we need to have a mouse model of depression. We do have mouse models of depression. How do we go about finding them? And what is the definition of a mouse model of yeah. depression? Uh, well, no, I mean, you, you've asked questions that are kind of circular because one leads to the other. And, and sorry, I, I, I just, that's, that's <laughs> often the answers are circular, too. Um, Doesn't it have a bit to do with what you just said and that it depends on what aspect of the de depression you're testing? So yeah. the model, mouse model could be a model of the overeating or uh, within this particular context. Right. And, uh, exactly. That's it. And, and I think... The way that we're now approaching doing animal modeling is not of illnesses. We, we model components or dimensions of an illness, but it's also going to be relevant to understanding the neurobiology of other illnesses. So, you know, some of our research is on the cognitive components of depression. The same cognitive symptoms exist in schizophrenia, and the same set of symptoms can exist in Alzheimer's disease or PTSD. Understanding what is common about those illnesses that could represent that particular dimension that's shared, that's what we can model in the laboratory. The advantage there is that we can then study the neurobiological processes that are responsible for that particular dimension. And that will give us an insight into a piece of illness, but a piece of many illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's, that's certainly how the psychiatric field is starting to view illness. That's how NIMH is starting to view um, the research that we do that is relevant to, to mental illness and psychiatric disorders. Um, so I think when we model something in animals, we're modeling pieces of behavioral dysregulation that may be applicable to several. Um, so what's a good example? Um, well, we study cognitive dysfunction, and, and specifically we study uh, what we call a deficit of cognitive flexibility. This is the ability to change what you've learned based on changes in the environment. Um, one form of cognition that many people are familiar with is learning and memory. So you teach an animal or a person something, and then you test how well they remember that. And that, of course, is beneficial. Um, however, there are certain situations where it's not beneficial to always act on what you learned previously because the world has changed. And now it's, it's important that you recognize that the situation that led to that previous learning is now different. And you have to change what you've learned and acquire something new. 
That's called cognitive flexibility. And the parts of the brain in the prefrontal cortex that are responsible for that are often dysregulated in many of, of the psychiatric illnesses that we're, that we're studying. Um, and many of those illnesses, if you test patients for the ability to modify what they've learned or to change their thinking, um, are deficient in that area. So we can create that. We have tests for cognitive flexibility in animals, and we can do things that will cause deficiencies in those abilities and then look at those now as therapeutic targets. That's just one of the kind of dimensions that would be um, applicable. But is that, um, I'm curious, um, so what, what area of the brain are you talking about? Um, so, the, in particular for that, it's the prefrontal cortex, and there are different subregions in the prefrontal cortex. This is sort of the region we're most interested in. If you put your fingers in the very front of your brain and pried open the two hemispheres, it would be the part of the brain that's on that middle wall toward the bottom. It's the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Don't um, actually try this. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that part is reliably consistently dysregulated across several uh, psychiatric disorders. Um, it, it's a signature of depression, it's a signature of PTSD, of course in, in Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders many parts of the cortex are dysfunctional, but that would be included and that would also be consistent with the behavioral deficits. So because you're dealing with these prefrontal regions, um, I wonder if, is it specifically when you have psychiatric disorders or is it the same type of perseveration that you see in the older adults, mm. in normal uh, cognitive decline, uh, well, whatever normal cognitive decline is, uh, but is it the same kind of issue? Is it is it perseveration? Is it a one, is it one thing or can it be different? Um, I mean, that's it's a good question and it's a difficult question because at one level, how you test in a very specific context, you can get specific results, right? I mean, you can get very nuanced differentiation between types of behavioral responses, and perhaps you can relate that to changes in, in smaller and smaller subregions of the brain or different pieces of a network. But I think, in general, when we talk about cognitive flexibility or perseveration, which is, which is kind of the inverse of that, we're probably talking about the same general structures in the brain, how they get dysregulated in Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's versus depression or PTSD may be different. So the manifestation might be different because you might have different residual functions or, or different compensatory responses. But I think we are talking about a general construct when we're talking about cognitive flexibility. Um, different subregions are responsible for different variations of that, but I, I do think that represents a dimension. It represents a, a domain of cognition that we can talk about as a, as a whole construct. So is there a concern? I mean, obviously we want to be able to, you know, control cognitive flexibility in a manner that's appropriate when treating psychiatric disorders, but is there a concern that we could go too far in the other direction? So somebody now is going to be overreactive to the stimulation. Is this something that is a concern when designing therapeutic strategies, or mostly I'd say from a pharmacological angle, in sort of treating depression where maybe you overshoot? And sort of on the flip side, you know, maybe not on the flip side, but should we be thinking about psychiatric disorders is sort of a full spectrum. And so like we have, instead of, you were alluding to this, of, you know, now we're sort of looking at different symptoms and stuff, but maybe we shouldn't, we're imposing these arbitrary sort of constraints on these sort of symptoms, and maybe we should be looking at the individual symptoms and thinking of them as a spectrum. And in some ways, we're never going to get a silver bullet for depression, but maybe what we should be doing is 
focusing on specific aspects mm -hmm. and realizing all of those work on a spectrum. And so I guess that's a long-winded yeah, no. question, but um, can we, is there a concern that we shift the system too far in one direction so that now we may have treated one aspect of depression, but we've now created another? Yeah, well, I mean, I, you're describing in more general terms the whole notion of off-target effects of any, any drug treatment. I mean, you know, an effective antidepressant does not restore normal function. It restores capability, right? And that may be by compensating for something that's gone wrong in the brain, whether through environmental exposure or genetics or what have you. It doesn't mean it's restoring the brain function back to the way it was before quote-unquote illness happened. Um, and, and the drugs that we give don't just work in the medial prefrontal cortex to fix cognitive flexibility. They act throughout the brain, throughout the body. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, these are powerful drugs and they have a lot of side effects, a lot of off-target effects, including on some of the behaviors and, and cognitive processes that we would be concerned about. So of course, that's always, that's always a concern and I think it's important to recognize that the drugs don't put a brain back into its baseline state. Um, you know, if, if it would be much more impactful to prevent illness than to treat it, right? And we just don't know enough yet about how illness occurs, how, you know, the, what the predisposing factors are, what are factors from genetics, prenatal nutrition through child rearing, socioeconomic status, stress exposure, what have you. Um, if it were possible to prevent illness, that would certainly be ideal. You know, the other issue that you're nudging up against is cosmetic psychiatric treatment. Um, are there specific traits that we can target because they're desirable rather than maladaptive? Are, you know, is it just desirable? And, and there's always a trade-off because there is no drug, there is no treatment, there is no way to target specifically one network, one process, one piece of the brain. I was curious about, um, you mentioned earlier some of your work, uh, one of your students' work, where you're actually creating animal models of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or a behavioral treatment rather than pharmacological treatments with some success. Mm -hmm. And so I found that really interesting to be able to show equivalent success with medication versus behavioral treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so what can you tell us about, about that? Well, right. Uh, and we, we start with the basic assumption that effective therapies of any modality are impacting brain function. Um, and so if we have an effective drug that we know changes a neurotransmitter function or a signaling pathway and that's effective, that effective behavioral interventions are going to have some impact on neurotransmitter function, on signaling pathways, on, on something that will be beneficial to the brain. Um, the way that we constructed the model that we're, that we're studying now, um, we operated under the assumption that if there was some deficiency in neural function in the medial prefrontal cortex that led to cognitive inflexibility on a particular test that we use, that if there were a way to induce activity in that same circuitry and induce it in a way that would produce plasticity, that is a long-lasting effect that would have some stable change in function, that that might be beneficial. And so we went to the learning literature and uh, we use extinction 
training, we call it extinction therapy now, um, <laughs> extinction training, um, and, and really it's very similar in concept to exposure therapy, which is used for OCD or for phobias or, or in, in, with some success in treating PTSD. Um, that is a, a form of learning that is very much like what I described for cognitive flexibility. Uh, animals learn to associate a stimulus with some, some outcome. In this case, you compare a tone with a, a mild foot shock, and they, the, the tone comes to take on negative, uh, negative valence for, for the animal, and they learn to fear the tone. And then if you expose them repeatedly to the tone in a different context, in the absence of shock, they now learn that the tone no longer predicts a negative outcome. So that's classic extinction. That process activates and requires the same part of the medial prefrontal cortex that we think is, is dysregulated and responsible for cognitive inflexibility in stress-related psychiatric disorders. And so that's exactly what we do. We create the deficit in cognitive flexibility. We treat animals now by training them in an extinction paradigm, and we've shown beneficial effect. We're also now studying the changes in neurotransmitter function, in receptor expression, in the induction of plasticity and markers of changes in synaptic efficacy in the prefrontal cortex, and we think that's a mechanism potentially for, for exposure therapy, which is a form of, of behavioral psychotherapy. So in that case, you're inducing the neurotransmitter deficit and then, or change, mm -hmm. and then reversing it. Mm -hmm. Can you reverse a physiological uh, baseline? Like you, you ha there, let's take someone who actually is, has a psychiatric disorder. Um, well, I don't know if all psychiatric disorders are caused by something initially, but let's assume that their neurotransmitters are off biologically. Do you think that your cognitive behavioral therapy model would have the same effect on those animals as opposed to animals that you've induced to have a, a neurotransmitter problem? Yeah, I think the situation is going to be similar to what we just talked about with drug therapy. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that how pathology occurs, there, there are many routes to get to illness, including psychiatric illness. Um, and an effective therapy may not fix the, the original insult, but may allow compensation, may overcome, to restore uh, acceptable functioning in the face of, of continued deficits. So I think it really depends on how we got there. Um, I think what we're showing is that the behavioral therapy initiates processes that are beneficial, that, that help to boost the function of that part of the brain and therefore have, have uh, a therapeutic effect on deficient behaviors that are mediated in that part of the brain. I don't know if they fix the deficit. It probably depends on how the deficit was created. Um, but I think much like drug treatment, we're showing that you can improve function that will be helpful in, in a sickness. So talking a little bit in sort of general terms about, you know, cognitive flexibility, do you think you could sort of describe how you are modeling that cognitive flexibility in your animal models and sort of what aspects of cognitive flexibility? Because I think you had a, a few different distinct forms that engage different parts of the, the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, so, so one test that we use is called the attentional set shifting test, and it was really developed for, for measuring cognitive flexibility in rats based on, on a human test that, that's used part of the CanTab test battery. Um, and here we, we teach animals to find a piece of Cheerio 
that we bury in a, in a flower pot. And there are two flower pots. Honey nut Cheerio um, or regular? Uh, it's Honey nut Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody is willing, talk about perseveration, nobody in the lab will ever change <laughs> what kind of Cheerio we use, because this one works. Um, so we have two pots, and they're defined by two different stimulus dimensions. So we fill the pots with a different material. There's a, there's a texture cube, and we put uh, an odor on the rim of each pot. So there's an odor cube. Um, and one of those is going to tell the rat where to find the Cheerio, and one is a distractor. So we train the rat to find the Cheerio, and once they do, they tell us that they successfully mastered that, that learning by getting it correct six times in a row, then we change the rules. And how we change the rules as we progress through a series of tasks taps into a different type of cognitive flexibility. So in one example, reversal learning is the cue that was previously positive, told them where the Cheerio was, now will not be paired with the Cheerio, and the cue that was not paired with the Cheerio before is positive. Um, but it's still the same stimulus dimension, same odor or, or texture. Um, and that that type of specific cognitive flexibility requires the orbital frontal cortex, which is one subregion of, of the prefrontal cortex. And we uh, another type of cognitive flexibility is called set shifting. As we go through a series of these tasks and we switch the rules, we change them in different ways, we always make them pay attention to the same stimulus dimension, odor or texture, and then after six of the tasks, we switch that over to the other one. So for the six trials, they've learned that when the rules change, when things go wrong, that they should pay attention to one particular set of cues, and that's called forming a cognitive set, which is really a strategy for learning. Um, and then when we switch that, they have to abandon that previously established cognitive set and change what they know about their strategy. Um, that's a little more complex form of flexibility that requires the medial prefrontal cortex. So in this way, we can get some rough differentiation, but, but it's all a network and it's all connected. It tells us different things, though, about different types of cognition. Um, so, for instance, perseveration, which is continuing to try the same thing in the face of altered you know, outcomes, um, is characteristic of OCD. And the most effective drugs now for OCD are serotonin reuptake blockers. And there's evidence that serotonin is dysregulated in the same circuitry, the dorsal striatum, the orbital frontal cortex, that mediates reversal learning. And so we think that's probably a pretty good model for OCD. And we can look at novel therapies or new signaling pathways that we could target um, by looking specifically at that type of a response. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that we're modeling to, to measure cognitive flexibility. Now, animal has to learn the pattern. So what they're learning there isn't just a task, it's some kind of uh, meta-task mm -hmm. that overlies everything. But they learn it. It's not that they learn to go back to trial and error, random trial and error, right. as they would in a completely random environment. Right. The right. perseveration would impede them also in a random environment. Um, it would. If it was just a new task and they were biased always toward one, that, that would be a, a detriment in a, in, a new, in a new type of, in a new learning situation. I was just thinking, isn't it different to learn to, uh, to, to, to learn what the new pattern is, mm -hmm. and now this is a pattern I can follow exactly, or to learn that there is no pattern yeah. and I should try new things all the time. Yeah. Does anybody ever ask animals to do that? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, as we 
support our tests between species for different reasons. You know, I mentioned that this was uh, reverse translated from human to primate and then to rats. Well, we have colleagues who were interested in using mouse models for, for genetic reasons um, and asked us to help them set up this task in mice. Mice are very much like what you described. Every trial is like a new one to them. <laughs> and, and the difficulty with them, it was hard to show difficulty in the set shift task because they weren't forming a cognitive set. It was like every time they had to learn the contingency, it was a new learning. Um, which, which makes it hard. They're cognitively impaired. impaired. Yes. So there, so there <laughs> cannot be a mouse model of compression then. Well, you have to be a cognitive impaired. You have to be a little bit smarter than the subject, <laughs> or more perseverative. So what we ended up doing was perseverating, and <laughs> we we basically the the way to overcome this, and we got some some clues from some of our colleagues who are much better at cognitive testing than we are, um, because mice have difficulty forming a cognitive set for whatever reason, it was necessary for us to change the way we did the test. And we basically spread it out over several days and just overtrained them on one of the earlier tasks where we just kept saying, we're changing, pay attention to this. We're changing, pay attention to this. We're changing, pay attention to this. Eventually, they got it. But we had to repeat that over a few days. So there may have been some consolidation. There may have been some, some reactivation of, the, of that memory, that meta-learning about the task. And then they formed a set, and we were able to get a set shifting deficit. But it really required us to, I, I mean, I can't even say we thought like mice. I think we just accidentally tested the same one twice or something. I don't, we got clues that there was a strategy. But recognizing that the characteristics of the species or the subject, or the model that you're using can sometimes force you to change how you ask the questions that you're after. Um, that, that's really important because everything doesn't port very easily from one to the other. So isn't that a huge clue? I mean, if I had two groups of rats, one of which could learn one of these sets and one couldn't, I would immediately think, well, let's see how much serotonin they have yeah. or how their prefrontal cortex is organized. Yeah. Is there, are there differences between rats and mice that we can point at and say that's what caused these huge differences in their ability to learn? Because every, I mean, I don't do this stuff, but every animal behaviorist I know would like to switch to mice for genetic reasons and, and is refusing to do it because the mice are just too stupid to learn any of the tasks. Yeah. I mean, I think they're different. And recognizing that is important. You know, a lot of times, I think in some ways people are more attuned to switching between, say, primates and rodents. Because we know that there are, there are behavioral repertoire that are different between primates and rodents. Their sensory information is processed differently. Uh, uh, their priorities, what is rewarding to one is not to another. I mean, they're just, and people who study them understand that. I think the the intuitive differentiation between rats and mice is not so obvious to many of us. Yeah, and we just think that mice are little rats. Right, and they're not. <laughs> they're just different. Um, and I think it's the, the burden is on those of us who want to utilize the advantages of mouse models is to uh, validate everything that we've learned in rats over many years. We do have to go back and make sure that the neural substrates are the same, you know, the, the anatomy the receptors, the transmitters, and the behavioral characteristics of, of the species are the same, and they won't be. What we have to do is to devise ways to uh, normalize them. 
to make sure that we're studying the same things in the same species. So, and just out of curiosity, if you have orbital frontal area and the ventral medial area, the prefrontal cortex are kind of the earlier parts of the prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. I guess, evolutionarily. And but it's still the prefrontal cortex is one of the later things to develop, mm -hmm. uh, both ontologically and developmentally. Is that the same thing? Uh, I forget what ontological means. Um, uh, so, do you see differences across species in in um, does the more complexity of the brain create these psychiatric disorders? Because you now have to integrate more developed prefrontal cortex to the system. That's a, that, that's a, that's a superb question. I wish I could answer it. I think. You're right. The, the prefrontal cortex is at sort of an intersection because along the edges, you know, it's almost like three layered. You know, it's old cortex and, and it's, it's phylogenetically conserved. How is that? Um, you know, and I think as we were just discussing, uh, our task is to, um, utilize or to devise ways to measure the same constructs in different species. And I think so far we've at least demonstrated that Yes, while more complex, and and while interpreted, you know, in the in the context of human life, human existence, the kinds of things that we're measuring in rats are, are they're different on the face than they are in humans. But I think we can see the similarities. I think you can see that the same processes are at work. And in fact, when you go in, this is how we validate all of our behavioral measures. When you give drugs that activate or inhibit or block a process in a human. You can replicate the same thing in a rat. When you uh, look at damage that's done to a particular pathway or a brain region and you see a deficit, you can see the same deficit in a rat. So I think we can validate our tests. How that relates to what we're calling psychiatric illness, you know, epilepsy is obvious. A seizure in a human is a seizure in a rat. Um, when you have a disordered thought process or trouble forming relationships, you know, how do you study that in a rat? There are ways. I mean, there is social behavior in roads. There is parenting. There is bond formation. And, and it may not be the same as the things that we see in types of human illness. I think the elaboration is related to the complexity of, of the cortex. So what may be a very fundamental, you know, foraging for food in a rat. If that's dysregulated in a human, does it become greed or hoarding? You know, I mean, I, I think we have to be able to translate the meaning of the behavior into the context of the, of the life of the organism. But I think you're right. It's the complexity that maybe, that maybe gives the characteristic to the illnesses. There are places in the human frontal cortex that are pretty hard to find in a rat. Mm. I mean, there are, people have opposing views about it. Some people think, oh yeah, it's all there. It's just really tiny little slivers and we haven't sorted it all out. But, uh, that's really a statement of faith rather than a uh, demonstrated fact, I think, most of the time. There are places on that human cortex that we haven't yet found in a rat and may not be there at all. So the existential angst region may be part of that. <laughs> to follow along this line is from a de developmental perspective. I mean, it's known that, you know, the prefrontal cortex doesn't really reach its full developmental, you know, I mean, earlier in females than in males, but taking that information there, does that give us any insights? One, how juvenile animals would act, would behave in your cognitive, cognitive set-shifting task, uh, attention set-shifting task, and alternatively, 
you know, incidents of depression in, you know, in juveniles. Mm -hmm. Does that sort of give us any further information about, like, can we use that sort of information from a developmental perspective in sort of what we see in sort of deficits in cognitive flexibility in juveniles? Is that something that is sort of informative that we can then target um, to treat depression? And is depression in a juvenile, is that going to be very different than depression in an adult? Well, I mean, the, the, the first answer, you know, by way of disclaimer is, well, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely there's definitely depression in yeah. juveniles, but. but I think you know sort of what what you're really talking about. You talk about gender differences. You talk about developmental. You know the the, the time of adolescence, early adult development is a very fragile time in in the trajectory of many psychiatric illnesses. Um, onset often occurs during periods of fairly robust physiological transition, right? Um, and so the hormonal influence on brain function, even on brain structure, um, can be very powerful in perhaps not creating illness, but creating vulnerability or resilience, resistance. Um, so I think certainly the period of development where a lot of synaptic formation, a lot of neurotransmitter systems and anatomical systems are establishing their blueprint and then you go through a period of pruning, which is an active removal of synapses and fibers and very important to normal functioning. That can be dysregulated in so many ways, right? Not enough, too soon, too many, too late. Um, and so I think that's a very vulnerable period because that's when a lot of what ultimately will become not just the functioning brain, but the plastic brain is being laid down. Um, at small, dis you know, it's a butterfly effect. A small dis disruption at an important critical period can have a lasting, very uh, potent effect later on. I guess, have you explored any of those avenues in your research of how the, you know juvenile animals work, or how a sort of juvenile stress exposure can then influence the performance later on in life? Yeah, not not per se. We haven't. We've looked a little bit at early uh, prenatal. Um, stress and how that that sets up vulnerability for later adult in, uh, insult and uh, as you might predict it does um, but there but certainly many people are are investigating uh, developmental uh, critical periods in in both normal development but also in in vulnerability to uh, stress vulnerability to psychiatric illness um, as you also know NIH is making a very strong push now to encourage us to study gender differences and and hormonal effects and I think the motivation is really so that the research results that we generate are valid when we talk about translating to the human condition we want to translate to the whole human condition not just a narrowly defined slice um, and so I think a lot of people are very sensitive very aware that Timing, gender, age, all of those are factors in, in well, our study. All those things affect uh, the uh, treatments that we use now. For example, SSRIs, do they, do they work as equally well at all ages and genders? Is that true? Uh, that? I mean, they, they're different. Uh, there are different, in different genders, for instance, the side effects can be different. Um, I, I don't know if efficacy of treatment is different, but certainly vulnerability to illness is different, and sometimes the manifestation of illness is different in different genders or at different ages, different time points. Um, depression in the elderly tends to be different than depression in, uh, in a juvenile. Um, there are 
there are, there are so many differences and we don't understand the differences yet, so it's hard to know how, how to understand differences in therapeutic efficacy. Of course, if I was trying to make a treatment, I would want to go for the thing that's in common among all those people, yeah. not for the, right. the differences. Right. Because I don't want to make 60 billion treatments, right. but I want to make one treatment if I can, especially since making a new treatment is very expensive. Depends if you're a pharmaceutical company and you want to increase the price of your drug from thirteen dollars to seven hundred and fifty. Then you can sell more. If it's a one size fits all, then you can sell yeah. more. <laughs> okay. okay, maybe that's a good time. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you, David, for being a pleasure, and Matt and Nicole.